Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Points of View podcast. In this episode, you'll hear 2018 visiting scholar James Steichen presenting on the stories of Serenade. This episode was recorded on February 14th, 2018, before a performance of Program 2, Bright Fast, Cool Blue. Hope you enjoy. I get the great pleasure tonight to introduce James Steichen, who is a musicologist by training with a PhD from Princeton. Uh, he has a book coming out this year called Balanchine and Kirstein's American Enterprise, which chronicles George Balanchine and Lincoln Kirstein's efforts during the 1930s prior to the founding of New York City Ballet. Um, that will be coming out this fall with Oxford University Press. He has previously taught at Princeton, Columbia, and for two years was part of Stanford's Italic Immersive Arts Program. Um, I hear there are a few Stanford folks in the audience tonight, so welcome. And prior to his graduate studies, he worked in the development office at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. He is currently the director of individual gifts at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and also writes program notes for the Orchestra of St. Luke's and Carnegie Hall. So if you would all join me in giving Jim a warm welcome, and thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you, Jenny. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. I'll dive right in. So our opening ballet tonight is one of my personal favorite ballets. It probably is, uh, for many people in the audience, it might be your favorite ballet. It might be your favorite ballet of all time, maybe your favorite ballet by George Balanchine. It's Serenade. Um, I don't know why we, everyone calls it Serenade. Balanchine often pronounced it Serenade as the way we pronounce Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings, but um, Serenade. What I want to do today is to talk a little bit about the stories that are often told about Serenade and then peel back a few historical layers to talk about the other stories of Serenade that haven't been told as often, in part because the evidence hasn't been available to scholars uh, until recent years. So we'll, I'm hoping that this will deepen your appreciation of Serenade and also help you understand the historical context that gave rise to this really beautiful ballet that we'll get to see tonight. Really briefly, uh, George Balanchine uh, uh, died in 1983. He um, was born in St. Petersburg, trained at the Imperial Ballet School. Uh, like many other Russian dancers, after the Russian Revolution, he moved to Western Europe, where he was snatched up by Serge Diaghilev to dance in the Ballet Russe, where he gained some of his most important early experience as a choreographer. In 1933, he came to the United States, and he's most famous today, uh, not only as the preeminent choreographer, one of the preeminent choreographers of the 20th century, but as the founder of the New York City Ballet. He wouldn't have come to the United States if not for this gentleman, Lincoln Kirstein, um, who uh, passed away in 96. I call him a polymath impresario. Some people say that Lincoln Kirstein is the most important non-dancer in the history of American dance, that is, someone who wasn't a choreographer or a dancer. He grew up in Boston. He went to Harvard. He edited a very important literary quarterly. He was a poet, a critic, historian, a philanthropist um, with interest in theater and virtually every art form. Um, but he's most famous as the patron and champion of Balanchine's career and a co-founder of the New York City Ballet. Now, you've probably heard some stories about Serenade. One of them may have come from, 
One of them comes from Balanchine himself. If you've seen this, uh, this uh, documentary produced for public television, he said, I started Serenade as evening classes to show how to be on the stage. I didn't have any idea to produce anything. Attendance at rehearsals was irregular, our narrator adds, but Balanchine made a virtue of necessity and he choreographed each section for as many dancers as he had that evening. Balanchine continued, I happen to, I have 17 dancers and I place them almost looks like orange groves in California, you know? If I had only 16, an even amount, there would be two lines. And now people ask me, why do you place them that way? Because I have 17. Here's a diagram of the 17 dancers. Um, those two arrows in the front uh, refer to two of the dancers, um, Annabelle Lyon and Ruthanna Boris, who drew this scheme. Uh, those arrows are there because when Balanchine was placing the dancers in this formation, because of its irregular shape, no one had any idea when he might be done. So they were the last called, they're sort of the last people on the bench waiting to be picked for the team, and they thought, well, maybe we're not gonna be in this one. And it turned out he was saving them for the last because they were the two shortest dancers, so they got to be front and center in Serenade. Another story of Serenade you may have read in Bernard Taper's biography of Balanchine. Taper explains, the first evening Balanchine worked on Serenade, 17 young women were present. So he choreographed the opening scene for 17, demonstrating how that awkward number of dancers could be arranged on the stage in an interesting manner. The next evening, only nine were present, and the third evening, six. At each session, he simply choreographed to the music with whatever students he had. Male students began attending the classes and he worked them in too. At one point where the women were supposed to rush out, one fell down and began to cry. He choreographed the incident right into the ballet. Another evening, someone showed up late. That went in too. There's some truth to this. Um, there's also, I think, a kind of biblical Genesis story rhythm that is introduced. On the first day, Balanchine made the first part of Serenade, and on the second day, he made the second part. And then he decided it was not good for female dancers to be alone, and he made male, you know, so. Um, and I say that as a, a church-going Christian, so I can make that joke. But I think that there's definitely something that's been applied to the story after the fact to make it seem completely organic and natural of the way this ballet is. In fact, there was a little chaos surrounding Serenade and its first incarnations. This is a, a very famous picture of the first performance of Serenade in June 1934. It was done outdoors. Uh, if anyone's ever tried to put on any event outdoors, you know that it can be a little chaotic. Um, as you can see, Balanchine is there in the middle doing his best to get everyone where they need to be, but it was, um, it was a little chaotic. Um, but nevertheless, Serenade really is an emblem for Balanchine in general. It's become an emblem for Balanchine's career in the United States. It redefined ballet at a per particular moment in history. It redefined ballet in America. It redefined Balanchine's career. Um, Serenade truly has become an icon. I think it's no accident that when a postage stamp was issued with Balanchine on it, that a little snippet from Serenade is depicted there, and they even had dancers 
from the School of American Ballet perform part of Serenade when they unveiled the stamp. In reality, Serenade was not quite so beautiful and intentional and free of imperfection in those early years. This is uh, one of the one of the, my most favorite images I've encountered in my research, an image that I hope my editor will let me put on the cover of my book. And I love it because it shows Balanchine doing what he does, working in the studio directly with dancers. Balanchine was not a choreographer who planned anything out in advance. He tried things out. He knew the music very well in advance. He was a very accomplished pianist, so he would have prepared the music in his own head. But here you see him with a group of very accomplished dancers. Um, in the middle is his, his second wife, Vera Zarina, a star of uh, the stage and screen. As you can see, she doesn't seem completely pleased with her husband. And the other dancers are a little unsure of what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I was just speaking to students over at the ballet school, and they pointed out that some of the some of the dancers are wearing point shoes and others are not, so and they're not in any kind of uniform the way our students here are. But this kind of captures the reality of what Serenade probably looked like in those initial rehearsals and in those early years. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge what may have been less than pristine and beautiful and biblical and pure about it in those early years. It is true that Serenade was created for dancers of the School of American Ballet, which was founded in 1934, the year that Serenade was first performed. And the School of American Ballet still exists to this day. It's the one part of Balanchine and Kirstein's enterprise that has had a continuous existence. This is a program from the first performance of Serenade in June 1934. Um, they were very proud to reach their 10-year milestone and published a, a nice brochure like this. But uh, you might ha not have noticed on that cover that Serenade was first presented not by the School of American Ballet. It was presented by the School of the American Ballet. And I point that out not just to be a pedantic historian, but to remind everyone that it was presented by, uh, that the school initially was quite closely associated with a short-lived company called the American Ballet. As this slide shows, it kind of speaks for itself. The uh, bewildering success that was touted in this ad was a short-lived success, and it was a little too bewildering to audiences. That's why it was in part short-lived. The American Ballet had a bold goal they wanted to create an authentically American ballet company. And I will, a quick sidebar, uh, those efforts had actually already begun here on the West Coast. Um, a lot of dance history is a little more New York focused, so um, people credit Balanchine and Kirstein with really those first efforts, but it was already well underway over here. But the idea of the American ballet, as you can see from this beautiful icon that was created for the souvenir program of their premiere as a company. The American dancer in the middle is surrounded by three other dancers, each representing three key centers of ballet history. Uh, on the top left, you see an Italian dancer. On the right, a French dancer. And if you ever want to get dance historians arguing really heavily, just ask them, is ballet Italian or French? And just, they'll go off. <laughs> but they kind of co-evolved in Italy and France. And below the American dancer is a 
a Russian dancer. Um, incidentally, Balanchine hated the fact that the Russian dancer had a little kerchief, but he got overruled on that front. But the idea was that here in America, we could synthesize the best of all these traditions and create a company that was a real authentic ballet company, but also authentically American. Now, this was really important to people like Lincoln Kirstein, because at the time, ballet in America was, for the most part, considered to be Russian ballet. After the death of Diaghilev in 1929, many people took up his mantle and started up various companies. We could spend two hours walking through the, all the various companies that toured. Um, but they toured extensively in the United States, and they, you wouldn't even need to say that ballet was Russian ballet, it was just ballet, and it was implicit that um, Russian ballet was ballet in America. They had very well-trained dancers, they, they, and some of them were classmates of Balanchine's when he lived in Petersburg. And they produced beautiful work at a very high level with beautiful sets and costumes. But the idea was that America needed its own company, so we should, we should try this out. Um, I will note that uh, Lou Christensen, uh, an important uh, figure here at San Francisco Ballet, was a key player in these early years in the 1930s, um, as well as his wife, Gisela Cacciolanza. And the idea was that these kind of dancers should be able to, um, and I should add that um, during this period of Russian ballet dominance, if you were a promising dancer like Lou Christensen, Usually your path to success was in adopting a Russian uh, stage name so that you could tour with these Russian companies. Um, Lou Christensen never did that to my knowledge. I'm happy to be corrected if someone knows. But the idea was that a dancer like Lou Christensen shouldn't have to change his name. He should be able to dance as an American dancer and be an accomplished ballet performer. The problem with the American ballet is that it was not very American <laughs> in its early years. And that's one reason it only lasted three years. Here you see a, a program page of one of their early ballets called Errant. As you can see, the title of this ballet is in French. It was originally produced in Paris in 1933 before Balanchine emigrated. Um, it told a very fantastical and abstract story of a woman here, you can see her, uh, who's being pursued by a man and she's elusive and wandering around. That dress there that you see was sort of as big as Elphaba's dress at the uh, end of the first half of Wicked. It was had to be carried around by multiple people. It was a very weird, abstract kind of thing. The American Ballet did try to be a little more American in some of its early repertory. They produced a ballet called Alma Mater, which, as you might guess from this photograph here, uh, the one on the right in color was originally published in Vanity Fair. It's, uh, was produced by Edward Steichen, a distant relation, very distant, I will add. <laughs> the idea behind Alma Mater was, let's make a ballet about a football game, specifically the annual Harvard-Yale football game in New Haven, starring the quarterback and his blushing bride, and uh, their great scandal ensues when uh, they soon after give birth to a Princeton son, to everyone's astonishment. So it's very funny. The thing is, in the 1930s, uh, not many people got to go to college. Uh, certainly very few women got to go to college, and very few people got to go to places like Harvard and Yale. And so the humor of alma mater 
did not really resonate with as many people as it as you might think. And it was also set in the 1920s, so it was it was sort of not right in the moment. The American Ballet also did a ballet called Reminiscence in its early years, which was actually one of the more successful ballets they put on. It was basically a set of 12 variations where Balanchine composed uh, short variations for each of the principal dancers that he had, including one with uh, a hoop that was a dance that he had danced in the Nutcracker when he was a young boy. But again, it gave them a chance to show off, but there was nothing really American about it or nothing that really could resonate with people. And it wasn't just that these ballets were a little off or a little weird or kind of elitist. It was that they were really not in step with the times. This is one of my favorite finds I've encountered in my archival work because I took a picture of it. Um, This is uh, located at Harvard, actually, in Balanchine's archive there. And I took a picture of it thinking, cool, oh, Balanchine's social security card, all right. They also have his Bloomingdale's card and his Amex, which is kind of random. So I took a picture. And then looking back on it, it suddenly struck me that, oh, Balanchine had a social security number in 1936 when social security was still a very new thing. And social security, as we all know, was a response to the extreme economic and social devastation that the stock market crash had wreaked upon the United States. So when the American Ballet was producing these very fancy esoteric uh, Ivy League ballets with insider jokes, uh, they really were out of step with the times um, because most art at the time was much more politically engaged. But you might say, but this is the period that also gave us Serenade from 1934, and it's true. And there is something beautiful about Serenade that we look back amid all this chaos and all these false starts and we see that there was something beautiful and new and fresh. And I think that for many of you in this room who have seen Serenade before, or if you haven't seen Serenade before and you get to see it for the first time tonight, lucky for you, what will strike you is the opening of Serenade. I think it's one of the best parts of the ballet. It's what really draws people in to this ballet and to Balanchine in general. If you don't want the opening spoiled, you can close your eyes and ears right now. But let's just watch the opening of Serenade. This is a 1970s production produced for public television. And you will see some credits at the beginning. And that is replicating the fact that uh, the music for Serenade starts with the curtain down and then the curtain goes up at a certain point and that's when the the dance starts. So um, when you start to see the dancers, that's when the curtain goes up. So let's watch this opening. All right, sorry to cut it off. You'll get to see it all tonight if you're coming. If not, get a ticket. Um, You won't regret it. So this is just a beautiful ballet. I think if I were on my deathbed and had the chance to see one last ballet, I'd probably pick Serenade. It's a desert island ballet, right? Although, how would you have a company of dancers on a desert island um, to watch over and over again? But, and, and people often ask me, um, I'll, I'll say that Mindy Aloff, a great critic, um, I was talking to her about Serenade one time, and she's like, why do you hate Serenade so much? Because I was telling her all these uh, what I'm about to tell you now is some sort of Mythbusters things about Serenade. Like, well, technically, you know, all these things. And I wanted to say that 
I wholeheartedly acknowledge the beauty of Serenade as it exists today, but I think it's also important for us to acknowledge what, what actually Serenade used to be like and some less familiar aspects about Serenade, uh, which I'll explain. This is what Serenade looked like in the 1930s, in 1934 when it premiered. As you can see, it did not have the beautiful Les Ulfied ethereal ballerina gowns. It had these dark costumes that are actually much more in keeping with 1930s aesthetics. These are costumes that Martha Graham's company could have worn and would have been okay to dance in. But as you can see, and the, the, the gentleman there has a weird little headpiece. At one point, I found that in 1935, it was danced with the red costumes, with red lights when they were at the Met. So Serenade didn't always look the way it does today, for one. But universally, Serenade is still hailed as this watershed moment, and specifically that June 1934 performance outdoors I showed you the picture of. It sort of assumed that those dancers took the stage and everything changed about ballet, everything changed about Balanchine, and yes and no. So Balanchine did premiere Serenade in June 1934 outdoors for an, a small and very elite group of spectators of a, a private gathering at the estate of Edward Warburg. Um, many of those people were the kind of people who would get all the in-jokes in a ballet like Alma Mater because they went to Harvard and Yale. But the thing about Serenade is that it, its firstness, which is so paralleled today, was not really in evidence in those early years. It was actually billed as one of two world premieres in June 1934, along with a ballet called Dreams, which is now not performed anymore. Dreams was also created uh, before Balanchine emigrated in Paris in 1933. Dreams looked like this in performance outdoors there. It had, as you can see, some fairly wild costumes. Imagine being in that costume in June on the East Coast. It'd probably not be fun. Anyway, it was very, a lot like the American Ballet's other repertoire. It was very, very extravagant and not quite up the times. The other thing about when Serenade first was first performed, uh, Dreams got to the stage before Serenade did. And Dreams was considered a premiere because they changed the music for Dreams. Uh, Balanchine did not like the score by Darius Milliot, who had done it originally, so he asked George Antile, uh, a Trenton, New Jersey native, to write a new score. So we had Dreams with a new score premiered on June 9th, and then it started to rain, so they had to call off the performance. So they went back the next day um, to premiere uh, Serenade. So it's, I think it's also important to remember that technically, um, I think Dreams has a very strong claim of being a first American ballet in addition to Serenade, and technically it got performed before Serenade. Serenade was next uh, on the program in Hartford in 1934 in December, and this was when Alma Mater was still in the repertoire. But as you can see, um, never shy of taking advantage of a marketing opportunity. It was again, uh, billed as a world premiere, why not? Um, not many people were at that June performance, so let's build it again. And it was one of three world premieres. It wasn't the first American ballet, it was one of Balanchine's three new works in Hartford. 
And then in, in March, when the American Ballet made its official, official debut in New York City, Serenade was again on the program. And it's from March 1935 that uh, is considered Serenade's official debut. If you go onto the Balanchine Trust website, it says March 1935 is the premiere. But you have this confusion about Serenade. Its firstness, it has multiple firsts. And if you look back, it has sort of three, at least three different claims of firstness, I think. So there's something a little messy about Serenade being Balanchine's first ballet in America. That's the first thing I ever learned about Serenade when I first was going to see it in Washington, D.C. It's like, well, you know that was Balanchine's first ballet in America. Technically true, with an asterisk, I would say. Serenade continued to be performed. The American Ballet when it went on a short-lived tour. It was supposed to last four months. It only lasted two weeks because it was mismanaged and uh, the man one of the managers they had hired uh, either went crazy or tried to steal all of the money or both. The record is a little unclear. Here you see Balanchine in front of the American Ballet tour bus with Yvonne Patterson one of his early dancers uh, whose scrapbook this picture was located in. But on this tour, it's interesting, Serenade was one of the least performed ballets. It wasn't in heavy rotation. It was not something that you had to see if you were gonna see the American ballet. As part of this tour, they did some advanced publicity. This is a flyer for performances in Chicago that never took place because they didn't make it that far. But as you can see, the ballet that they want front and center is not Serenade or Dreams or Errant, it's Alma Mater, the Ivy League ballet, because that was the most American thing they had, with a score by Kay Swift, uh, I'll mention too, an American composer that they commissioned. And you can see in that tour brochure, the Alma Mater is the literally the centerfold, oh, sorry, getting ahead of myself. Alma Mater is the centerfold center spread, prime real estate, whereas Serenade gets one page towards the back with those weird costumes depicted. So again, Serenade wasn't as big a deal as it is nowadays. I wanna go back to this picture. This picture has often been glossed as an instance of the chaos that Balanchine had to deal with and the inexperienced dancers that he had to be so patient with and that he sort of molded the rough clay of the new world into the porcelain of the old world. I would, that's sort of the metaphors that are often invoked. The fact is, Balanchine was really lucky when he came to the United States because he attracted a group of dancers who had already been exceptionally well-trained by a lot of other people. He had Holly Howard and Catherine and Dorothy Littlefield from Philadelphia. He, um, not in those first years, but later had Lou Christensen, Gisela Cacciolanza, Harold Christensen, Ruby Asquith. These were dancers who already knew what to do. And so I think it's important to remember that I think what is important about Serenade in these early years was not that it was breaking in these dancers who had no idea what they were doing, but it was homogenizing a group of dancers who all came from these different backgrounds. Um, Annabelle Lyon, one of those dancers who was in the front row because she was so short. She studied with Michelle Fokine, and she recalls vividly when she first started taking classes that, oh, it must have been crazy because we all had these different styles and we had to kind of all figure out what we were gonna do 
together. So that's a small but important distinction to know about what Serenade meant in those early years. You'll recall the metaphor that Balanchine invoked to describe this unconventional structure, an orange grove in California. I think it's worth mentioning that Balanchine had never seen an orange grove in 1934 when he started choreographing Serenade. This is his driver's license from when he lived in Hollywood. One of the students just asked me, he's like, well, he could have gone to California earlier and just didn't get a driver's license. As I said, great question. We know that he didn't go to California prior to um, 1935 at least. So that orange grove formation happened uh, before he'd ever seen orange trees in person. So, you know, again, can't blame Balanchine for thinking up a good story and a good metaphor, but I think it's worth knowing that isn't really true. The next couple slides have two of the most uh, amazing things that I've encountered in my research. They're one of those moments where you, you've been sifting through a scrapbook that is in some, some days literally falling apart in your hands because the newspapers are so acidic and you wonder if you're gonna be the last person to get to look at it before the librarian decides that it'll be digitized and no one will ever get to touch it again. You're looking through all these things, looking for those special things, and then you come across something like this. And this is from a review of the 1935 March performances of, of the American Ballet, which included Serenade. And this reviewer says that certain details of Serenade were well calculated to stir the risibilities of observant spectators. So um, I made the students guess or define risibility, to get them ready for their SATs. Anyway, there was something humorous about Serenade. What was so humorous about Serenade? If you've ever been to Serenade, you probably haven't had anyone laugh at it. I certainly haven't. What was so funny was that Serenade contained laughter at the expense of the Imperial Russian Ballet. It was more surprising because the evening's choreographer, George Balanchine, is a product of that school and the last choreographer of the Diaghilev troupe. Mr. Balanchine permitted one of his dancers, after steps of unerring grace, to lose her place in the ballet and dash about to regain it. Hearty applause greeted her success. I don't think this will happen tonight or any other night here when you're watching Serenade, but I think it's worth remembering that there are so many things in Serenade that were not typical of ballet in the 1930s. The opening gesture with the hand up, that's not a canonical arm position. Certainly this, these incidents that he weaves in where a dancer has to go weave in and out and find her place, that's a very strange thing and people regarded it as such. And I don't think it's sacrilegious to acknowledge that uh, someone used to find Serenade funny or unconventional. And actually we have a lot of evidence that Balanchine's reputation at the time for all of his ballets was as a weird, idiosyncratic, bizarre experimentalist. Uh, if I had another, next time we do Apollo here, I can come back and tell you all about how much American audiences hated Apollo in the 1930s, despite Luke Christensen's amazing performance as the first American Apollo. So I think 
This reminds you of how strange and unexpected Serenade was, just like the costumes, when we saw that slide of those costumes. That's not the Serenade that we know, and in some ways because it's a very different Serenade. Serenade didn't become the ballet that we know today until the 1940s. That's when it acquired the costumes that it still has today. The costumes are very carefully designed. They actually have thinner material in the front so that in that opening sequence, you can see the dancer's legs very clearly. It's very carefully crafted to be an icon, but it was not that kind of icon in 1934 when it premiered. So I think, and it also only had three movements in the 1930s. It was only in the 40s that the fourth movement was added back in with Tchaikovsky's order of the score reversed. And without that fourth movement, you don't get a reprise of this beautiful opening scene that we watched. So today when we watch Serenade, we see that iconic opening again towards the end of the ballet. It reinforces the iconicity of that moment. That's not something that would have been part of it original. So I think it's not accidental that Serenade becomes an icon only in these later years after it acquires this look, after it acquires that new musical structure, and it repeats that really beautiful iconic opening. I think it bears repeating in today's day and age that Balanchine was an immigrant who came here in search of a better life because of political turmoil in his country of origin. Read Elizabeth Kendall's book if you want to read all about his travails during the Russian Revolution and the aftermath there. And he was very proud to be a naturalized American citizen. He officially became a citizen in 1940 when he was most famous as a Broadway and Hollywood choreographer, I will add. But in these early years, Balanchine, I want, if you take nothing away from this tonight, please know that in the 1930s, Serenade was not the, ball the ballet that it would become and that we know today. And Balanchine in the 1930s was not the choreographer that he would eventually become. And I, I think it's, perfectly great to acknowledge that. It, it doesn't diminish Balanchine's present-day statue or the statue of Serenade to acknowledge that. As you can see here, in this uh, illustration from a newspaper, Balanchine briefly had a mustache, which this is the only image of Balanchine I've ever seen with that tiny little mustache. I don't think he could grow uh, much facial hair, actually. But you see him, again, like in that earlier image I showed you, watching the dancers, trying to figure out what they should be doing. Balanchine and all his dancers were quite young and inexperienced, just like Lincoln Kirstein. They had no idea what they were doing. They tried to create beautiful things whenever they could. Here they are on tour with another company that emerged from the enterprise called Ballet Caravan. They're doing what dancers love to do. They are posing, they're showing off their bodies. They would have Instagrammed this if they had had Instagram. But here they are having a good time, doing the best they can and making it work. So I'll end with a shameless plug. If you want to read the whole story of this, of Serenade and all these other ballets, and even more complicated back and forth before we end up with Balanchine as we know him today, you can check out my book. And again, I hope, I hope to leave you with this image as you watch Serenade tonight to think about the chaos and the uncertainty and the experimentation that's necessary to create something as audacious as an authentically American ballet company. And we would not be here today, the New York City Ballet would not be here today, 
if Balanchine and Kirstein hadn't been willing to experiment and fail and try new things. And I think ultimately that's one of the best stories that we can take away from a ballet like Serenade. Thank you, and if you're staying, I hope you enjoy the performance. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Points of View podcast. For other podcasts and audience engagement programming, please check out sfballet.org explore.